uh, and we didn't two Fifth Sundays ago because we've been looking and we're calling and it feels crazy to call people saying, we want to help fund your church, uh, but there's just no one picking up the other side of the phone. So definitely be praying that God will bring churches, good churches, to the areas that need it most. Uh, but in lieu of that, today I will be our fifth Sunday speaker. And I asked Ryan, does that mean that this week's giving goes to me? And he, he said, no. I said, fifth Sunday speaker, you know. Anyways, let me pray and we'll jump into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you as we study the book of Acts for your global church, your church that is on the move, your church that is, is growing into every corner of life. And Lord, we pray that you bring the right churches to the right neighborhoods that need it, that you bring God-fearing, humble individuals to feel that call and extend your church. Lord, bring these people, call them, that we can hear them and we can support them as well as other churches. Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So my name is Chad Francierra, if I didn't say that already. I'm the associate pastor here, if we haven't met. And uh, I have a little bit of a confession. I am in probably the, um, uh, the most sleep-deprived stage of, of my life, my wife and I both. We have, we have two young kids, a two-year-old and a five-month-old. Five-month-old, two-year-old, and a five-month-old, and then in May we bought our first house and we're we're fully remodeling it. It started with a little thing, and then and then it's moved the kitchen over there, and that was plugged in, so that involves a lot. And so that's been you know every every waking minute after work is running there and working there and and working on the house till late at night, and then coming home and getting a great eight hours of sleep. Not at all. Uh, you know, still sleeping with, with an infant in our room, and, and it's, it's, been, um, it's been a lot, and uh, as many of you have gone through yourselves. But I, you know, I'm finding one very funny, small little uh, symptom of the place of life we're in. At first it was the fatigue, but now what it is is, is, you know, everyone's got their TV shows that they love, they love to follow, and I'm realizing that mine are just coming and going. I'm realizing I'm falling behind on my TV. And, and more and more times, I'm having to excuse myself from the conversation because they're talking about something that, that I haven't seen yet. I just started episode one of Stranger Things. I mean, I'm just catching up. No one tell me anything. Um, so I'm, I'm falling behind on my obligations in life, and that's, that's difficult. Um, pray for me, yeah. No, no, it's all, it's all good, but... but what I really got to do is get the, get the house done by September because, you see, I am a huge Tolkien fan. You should put that picture up. That's C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Austin's running slides today. The old group. There it is. Yeah, it's, there's Tolkien on the far left and C.S. Lewis is second from the right. Uh, you know, the, the authors of, of, of Chronicles of Nardia and Lord of the Rings and, and all of that. I'm big fans of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings, but he also wrote a book called The Silmarillion. Okay, this is, this is geeking out to an extreme. Okay, if you've, have you, show of hands, proudly, have you read The Silmarillion? Anyone? There, there we go. I have to. Jeanette, you're going to. Okay, okay. If you liked it, see, I feel like most people, it's, it's, they, they, they read Lord of the Rings and say, I want more. And so you go to The Silmarillion, which is this anthology of all these stories that predate Lord of the Rings and, and kind of the, the building of that world and everything that leads us to the Lord of the Rings. And, and, and Tolkien just went to such extreme detail and lengths on that. But he has this uh, creation story. If, you, if you've read it, 
he begins with a creation story. And C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were both very, very strong believers. Tolkien was a, was a Roman Catholic his whole life, and, and, and Lewis was a Protestant, uh, Protestant Christian, but uh, close friends, and, uh, and their faith was a major part of their life. And Tolkien, in the beginning of the Silmarillion, writes this story of, of, of a creation account, a creation of the world that the Lord of Rings is, is born into. And, and it's interesting, it's this, this God figure... The, the, the metaphor for Yahweh, the God that we worship, is this God named Iluvatar. And the way it starts is, is Iluvatar begins to create some other kind of celestial beings, these other, these other uh, kind of demigods. And then he begins to sing. He begins to create music. And these other gods... These other little lower gods start, start singing with him. They start harmonizing. And through their harmony, they begin to create the world together. And if you know the story, then there's one who begins, Melkor, who begins to, <laughs> I'm going to stop the nerdy stuff there. But he begins to sing in disunity. He begins to sing in, 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 in disharmony. He breaks harmony. If, if you know, you know, like today with Mark and Jess singing, when multiple voices come together and they sing different harmony parts, it sounds beautiful. But then if they're, if they're in contrast and they're fighting each other and they're singing in the wrong key or whatever, it sounds terrible, right? And, and that's what's happening. This little creation account is that, is that Iluvatar is creating this music and he's inviting everyone to join in with his music and not to counter it. Now, the really cool thing bringing it down to church. The cool thing is that Tolkien takes this idea from Hebrew philosophy. There's this word, you can put this word up there. It's a Hebrew word named chokmah. Chokmah, I think there's some phlegm in there somewhere, but chokmah. And uh, this word we translate as the word wisdom. But it's so much deeper than that. It's this idea that woven into creation is God's goodness. And that every step of life, every being, when it makes decisions to, for goodness or to counter God, is accessing that chokmah. That God created this world with his own thumbprint built into it, his own signature. And whether it's seen in creation or in relationships, when you see something that just glorifies God, that is us living as he created and that he created the world with, with perfect chokmah. But then what happened is the story of Adam and Eve in the fall. We began to sing in disunity. We began to pull away from his plan, pull away from his goodness that he created in the world, his order, his harmony to create our own. And it creates disorder, disharmony. So we have this world that God has created with this, this chukmah, this, this, this by God's song of order and harmony and goodness. And we have in the world the ability to choose that or the ability to choose counter to that. And God desires to restore creation. And the way he does it is he does it by starting small. I was trying to think of some illustrations for this. Uh, do you guys remember the movie Moneyball? Okay, this is the extent of my baseball knowledge. 
uh, is the movie Moneyball. Um, probably the movie Sandlot. You combine a couple movies together, you have my baseball knowledge. Sorry. Um, but in that, you have this, uh, this new philosophy on picking players, right? Not off the eye test, but looking at the stats. And the Oakland A's go farther you know, than everyone was expecting this year on a minimal budget. And what it does is it ends up changing baseball, at least according to the movie. I don't know if it's in real life. But according to the movie, it changes baseball. If everyone sees how this works and then everyone else wants in. Uh, also not a big soccer fan, but my wife was telling me that Liverpool was the first team that added a throw-in coach. Who would have thought that's necessary? But their throw-ins, I guess, were so much better that now other teams are adding a throw-in coach, that, that this one microcosm begins to affect as everyone else sees it. Well, this is God's plan for creation. This is God's plan to restore his chokmah in the world. He chooses a people. And first he chooses a man and says, Abram, and he says, I will make you into this great nation. And if you know the passage, he says, and the entire world will be blessed through you. He chooses Abraham. He chooses Jacob. He chooses Israel as his nation. At Mount Sinai, they begin their relationship, and that they are his people, and he is their God, and they become known as God's people, his chosen people. And you may have wondered why. And it's for the purpose that the rest of the world can see the chosen people and get a glimpse of God's chokmah. It's hard in a chaotic, crazy world to see God in any of it, but he says, maybe I can take this, this sample group and I can make the sample group follow my values, follow my, my goodness that he created this world to have, and that through that, the rest of the world can look in and say, that is who Yahweh is. But the plan isn't just for there. It's always been for the entire world. Today, I want to walk through two thresholds of understanding. The first is we're going to read in the book of Acts. We're going to read this early Jewish Christian church, this early group of, of, of Jewish men and women who have accepted Christ and see Christ as the Messiah, them learning that the gospel is for the whole world. That is one threshold we're going to go through as we read this passage today. And the second is all of us learning how to view Jewish law in the Old Testament, Jewish law and Jewish narrative. How do we view that in the Old Testament? How do we decide when it applies to us and when it does not? When to know the difference? Because that's hard, right? You'll read in the Old Testament, you read that it's an abomination to eat shellfish. And you'll say, was I supposed to take that to heart? Should I have not have gone to, uh, to that shrimp roll the other day? You know what I mean? Like, right? So, so we, we open up and that we're, we're left kind of confused of how do we interpret some of that Jewish history, that Jewish narrative, that Jewish law. So those are two thresholds of understanding I want to walk through today. First of all is how did the early Jewish church come to see that the gospel is meant for the entire world? And then second of all is how do we look back through that threshold? How do we interpret the Jewish world, the, the, the Jewish narrative, the Jewish law, and how do we understand that? So we are going to be picking up in Acts. Last week we lend, ended in Acts 9.31, and uh, this story, would, which is not, not up there yet, you can clear that off. So uh, the, the story starting in Acts 9.32 um, is actually uh, two quick healing stories. They're very, very brief. And we see it goes from this calling of Paul, 
to Peter. And it shows Peter doing two quick healing narratives. And we learn two things from these healing narratives. This is, is starting in, in 9.32 through the end of, of chapter 9. The first thing we learn is that the Gospels do a really, really strong work of getting us to see the authority of Jesus. What examples do we think of? I'm going to do a little call and response here. What examples do we think of stories in the Gospel that show us the authority of Jesus? Calming the storm. That's a huge one. It shows that he has the authority over creation. This man in the boat just told the waves to, to cool it. It's crazy. Right? Raising the dead. Lazarus, right? That was massive. Not just for Lazarus. I mean, big day for Lazarus. But that's huge for what that teaches us of who Jesus is. That teaches that Jesus has authority over death. Right, so there's all these big stories that, that show Jesus' authority in that world. And we see in these two quick stories, which we're, we're not going to cover this morning, the second half of, of Acts chapter 9, these two quick healing stories, we see that that same authority is now alive and well in the church. Peter makes it clear it's not his power. It is the power of Christ. The power of Christ that he calls upon is through him. But we see that power is there. And here's the second really important thing about these two healing stories is they bring Peter to the city of Joppa. Now, um, that would be uh, major extra credit if anyone remembers where the city of Joppa comes into. Did anyone? Do you remember the biblical story, Old Testament story? Who said that? There we go, Nick. Extra points for Nick. Extra donut for Nick. If there's any maple bars left, they're yours. Um, Jonah. Now, this is really, really significant, this parallel happening. Jonah is a story where this Jewish man was, was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh, the capital of, of one of the most evil empires, Assyria, who was actively destroying Israel, and said, go and bring my message. And if you know this, he runs. God brings him there. And in, in Jonah chapter 4, he says, this is why I ran, because I knew that you were a merciful God, and that if I went you would end up forgiving them. Jonah ran because he wanted them to burn. He gave up his life that the Ninevites could face God's wrath. But God forced him there anyways. Okay, that's interesting. Remember that. Peter is now sitting in the same city that Jonah was commissioned to go and bring the message of God's deliverance to Assyria Jonah's greatest enemy that day was Assyria, and Peter's greatest enemy of Israel at that day was Rome. Now let's start picking up in, in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. If you have your Bible, we're going to be working through most of, of chapter 10 today. Verse 1. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian court, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the poor and prayed constantly. One afternoon coming in, uh, sorry, one afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw clearly an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. Interestingly enough, 
uh, if you look in the book of Matthew, Simon's full name is Simon Bar- Barjona. Um, he, his namesake, not by relation probably, but his namesake was he was named after the prophet Jonah. Once again, another crazy little parallel. Just remember that from earlier. Okay. Send to Joppa. Uh, he is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so Peter is being commissioned. He's being called uh, from Joppa, but not to Nineveh. Uh, now it's, it's, it's to Caesarea. Not Caesarea Philippi. That's inland. This is a different Caesarea. This, this city was built by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a a Jewish governor who Rome put in charge, in charge of the area. And in return, Herod built this incredible city, second only to Jerusalem, called Caesarea, named after Caesar Augustus. He built this city, he named it after Caesar Augustus. He designed it like a Greco-Roman neighborhood, and it was all, it was all planned and grids and all that, and it had, had you know, a sewer system and, and, and water system. Uh, the first man-made port in the world was built by Herod the Great in Caesarea. Kind of, kind of interesting, kind of cool. And this became the Roman capital in the area of Judea. Right? This is where their military was held. This was where their, their main government, local government that was overseen and oppressing Judea, Jerusalem, that whole region, all the Israelites, was centered in Caesarea. Caesarea. We think of Pontius Pilate, right? He was the Roman uh, you know, proconsul over that entire region. This is where he would have lived. This is where their military would have had the strongest presence. And in fact, this idea of this Italian cohort was that many of the Roman soldiers were commissioned from other parts of the world, but the Italian cohort were were true Roman citizens. And they were in this very special unit, and they would have been in Caesarea to protect the Roman official over that whole region. So you see the parallels a bit. Jonah sent to Nineveh, the worst capital, and Peter from Joppa is being called upon by the guy who's protecting their Roman oppressor, a Roman himself, living in the Roman city of the area. The parallels is pretty incredible. And yet, when we step back, this makes sense to us. See, this is probably more offensive to the Jewish readers in its day than it is to us. I am not of Jewish descent. I acknowledge Christ as the Messiah I have received the gospel, so this makes sense. Of course, God would be pulling Peter into the unknown world, but, but to them, that would have been offensive. And yet, when we look back in Scripture, he's been doing it all along. In Genesis, it says that Abram visits a high priest, Melchizedek. And we're like, what is that? What do you mean high priest? This is before Moses and, and Aaron and the law. We have no idea, but it's clear that God is also at work outside of the Israelites. With Jonah, we saw that, that, that God sends him to go deliver the people of Assyria. And I uh, found this one quote um, from Philip Francis Elser. It says, Luke, it's a commentary on this passage, it says, Luke is suggesting that the prayers and alms of Cornelius were accepted by God in lieu of the sacrifices, which he would not have been allowed to enter the temple to offer himself. In other words, God has acted to break down barriers between Jew and Gentile by treating the prayers and alms of a Gentile as equivalent 
to the sacrifice of a Jew. So we see that since the beginning, God has always been seeking the entire world. But he used this chosen people that we could all see what life in God's kingdom should look like. But then the people in that, in that chosen people, how do they begin to come out of that in their understanding as this world expands? We see as well as the Jewish church uh, have to be reminded that God's plan was always for the whole world. I mentioned some of these passages earlier. Let's, let's, let's look at some of these. Uh, Genesis 12. You can put that one up there. This first couple three. There we go. I will make you a great nation. This is what God says to Abram. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. All families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham, through his people, the Israelites. Isaiah 49.6. Isaiah 49.6. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. And think about Jesus in the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So therefore, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go to the corners of the earth, Jesus told them. Go to the corners of the earth. This has always been God's plan. But for so long, we've been living in this world of this, this microcosm of Israel as, as this, this uh, embodiment of God's values. And this is the moment that the entire Old Testament has been, has been prophesying is that finally blessing will come to the entire world. Let's, let's look at Acts uh, chapter 10, verse 9. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. So Cornelius, the centurion, has sent out his soldiers. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened up and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. And in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And he, he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times in the third, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Three separate times he witnesses this vision, confirming it in case you misinterpreted it the first time. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now, profane doesn't mean sinful. Profane doesn't mean bad. We think of profanity. It means common. Right? Israel was called to be holy. Holy means set apart. Uh, set apart for a special purpose. There's plenty of tables in the world, but this table is, is, was built for, for preaching the word of God to this people. In that way, this table has a degree of holiness because it's been set aside for a purpose. Israel was holy, is holy because they've been set aside for the purpose of being uh, a light into God's kingdom for the rest of the world, that we could look in and see how God's law would be carried out. So what God has made clean, you must not call.
call profane. He's giving Peter this kind of weird illustration. And we first can read it and say, okay, this is talking about the Jewish dietary laws of what they could and couldn't eat. And, and so clearly he's trying to tell Peter that, that everything is, is permissible to eat now. And, and that feels like a lot of ink on paper for kind of a smaller point. So what's going on here? You know, because in their delivery, all laws were the same. Yet their functions were very, very different. The law served the purpose of establishing God's holiness as them being the chosen people. But they served different roles, right? Some uh, of the laws, of the Mosaic laws we find in, in the book of Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, uh, create cultural unique traits. Circumcision is the big one I'm thinking of, right? It creates a, a culturally unique trait. That is a marker of what separates them from the outside world. But as we read in the rest of the Gospels, that becomes uh, passed by. That that's not necessary of the Gentile believers. Dietary laws. We can read those today. Like I said, abomination eats shrimp. And we say, okay, I think that was more of a marker to separate these people from the other part of the world. Okay? Yet some of the laws conveyed moral values and social values. Like, like the Ten Commandments. Those still apply. Those still are significant for our lives. Hospitality and care for outsiders is a major piece of Mosaic law. That doesn't necessarily define them as a people. That is a moral code, a moral value. And so we can kind of begin to make this, this difference of, of what laws still apply to us today and what are, 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 are stuck in the Old Testament in terms of their purpose. And it's really simply to identify and create the Israelites as culturally unique or were they conveying a moral value of God? Yet some are more difficult. There's a, a passage, a, a law I was talking about with, with someone recently where it says uh, not to boil a calf in its mother's milk, right? Just as a way of cooking it. Don't boil a, um, a calf in milk. I could read that one way and say, okay, that's just dietary. That, that's just to mark them as Israelites, that doesn't really convey moral. But then I can say, well, or, or is that just kind of a, a piece of cruelty almost? Like, sure, eat the cow, but like, you don't have to boil it in its mother's milk. You know what I mean? So, so there are some that are more indistinguishable. Casting out a leper from the community was probably just about protecting the people, right? Now leprosy, which still exists every once in a while, but it's a highly treatable ailment. Casting them out is not fully necessary. So as we look at the laws of the Old Testament, as a church, we can look and say, what of these laws are simply marking culturally the Israelites as different, as separate from the rest of the world? And what are conveying God's values? Uh, intermarriage was a huge one. Right? They were not allowed to marry someone who was not an Israelite. Well, if Israel is meant to serve as this microcosm to the whole world, well, that makes sense. You need to keep them separate, separate, set apart for his purpose, this purpose that we can all look in. But now the gospel is being opened up to the whole world. That doesn't make sense for us today. So we have to discern, and we do, do that as a church. The other way that we can help discern is when Jesus himself was asked, teacher, what commandment is the, uh, in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments 
hang all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, all of the Hebrew Bible, hangs on loving God and loving others. So if you want to look at Old Testament laws and say, okay, so which of them was restrained to just the Hebrew people as a marker of their holiness? And which of them applies to me today? That's a great filter. Does this help me to love God and love others? Or does it not? And like I said, the authority of the church is something that we read together. Okay, so Peter gets this vision, lowered on the sheet. There's all these animals that the Jews were not supposed to eat, and God says, rise, eat, and kill. He says, by no means, I would never do that. And he says, what I have created, do not call common, do not call profane. It is opening up. Verse 17, now while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision, that he had seen, suddenly a man, the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, he's up on the roof, and said to the spirit, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason you are coming down? Remember, Peter still is trying to interpret this sheet with his animals, and he's still trying to interpret this vision that he was given when this happens. I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason you are coming? Verse 22, they answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. Verse 25, on Peter's arrival, Cornelius meets him, and falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him stand up, saying, I am only a mortal. I am only a man, as some say. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found out that many had assembled. And he said to them, look, at this is still an entire lifelong mindset of their culture being separate. It's going to take a while for it to unfold. You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Why am I here? I have no idea. But God said, get up and follow him. Peter is still trying to piece together all these things. He says, I shouldn't even be in a room with you guys. I shouldn't even be in the room with Gentiles like yourselves. Not to mention Gentiles who are supporting this, this oppressive Roman Empire in our region. But God told him to go. So Peter began to speak to them. Verse 34, he said, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. 
We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the living, sorry, commanded us to preach uh, to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay, so essentially Peter delivers the gospel to these people, still not knowing while he's, why he's there. Still trying to interpret, what was this vision I saw about a bunch of animals on a sheet? He's still trying to interpret this. He goes because God tells him to go. He gives this gospel message. And then verse 44. This is huge. This is the moment we've been waiting for since Abraham. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the moment that we've been waiting for since Abraham. This moment that's often overlooked and overread is, is massive. It's a turning point in all creation. In all salvation history, this is a massive pivot point. Uh, this day is called the Gentile Pentecost. The Gentile Pentecost. And is the, the very first Gentiles to accept Christ and to receive the Holy Spirit. If you don't know about Pentecost, it's, it's got three big celebrations, three big times the first, Pentecost, was founded at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The, the Israelites left slavery in Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. They receive the law, which begins their relationship with God. That from that moment, Israel is God's people. And Yahweh is Israel's God. From that moment, that is the first Pentecost. The establishing of their relationship and the law to guide them. And then after Easter, you know, in the Christian church, we celebrate Pentecost. When the, when the believers, the first church, received the Holy Spirit. Which, once again, was to guide them as God's people. This new marker as God's people. And then this one. Giving of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Is once again a pouring out of the Spirit of God to guide them. And to fulfill Abraham's promise that the entire world will be blessed through his lineage. Let's keep going and finish it up. So this, this happens, and now Peter has to, has to go back with a couple witnesses and tell the church in Jerusalem everything has changed. See, we're reading this with, with modern-day Christian eyes, but the church up to this point was still entirely Jewish and still, still entirely uh, living by, by the, the, the laws that separate them from the rest of the world. So Peter is just, his mind is, is racked by what just happened. He goes back to Jerusalem, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now as the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So, they, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, 
criticized him, saying, what did you, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? I love how that's their first response. Not like, hey, I heard the Holy Spirit just poured out on a bunch of, of Gentile believers. Up there. It's, I heard you had a meal with them, right? That's his first reaction, because that's how important the law was. Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Verse 15, and as I began to speak, this is Peter, he's retelling the story. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had happened upon us at the beginning. He's remembering their own Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is one small phrase. That's one small verse. Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. But that one little line shifts everything. And like I said, it's hard for us to see now. We're raised as, as part of God's people, of Christians. But you have to understand how massive this was. For millennia, they have been waiting, holding on to the prophecy that through Abraham, the entire world would be blessed. And it's here. It's come. This small phrase, in this, the blessing of Abraham has been fulfilled. What, what do we take away from this? That's a lot, I know. Sorry. It's a lot. It's big. Here's what I take away from this. God's plan has always been for the whole world. And God's plan has always been for you. And what this shows me is God's unrelenting, uh, just, just unquenchable pursuit of you. That since the fall of man, this was his plan to use Israel that the entire world could understand him more. And when the timing was right, to send Christ and to open up the gospel, to open up the people of God to the entire world. When you read this, I hope that you don't just hear the story of, of some Romans and Peter hanging out in, in Caesarea. I hope you hear as this is the moment that your inheritance was written in. Does that make sense? This is the moment that your inheritance into the kingdom of God was written in. Which was always God's plan. God desired this calling on your life. God pursued you since the, the fall of man. God had your name on, on his mouth. And this is the moment that he created for there to be this shift that through Christ the entire world would be blessed. That through Christ, you would be included in this kingdom. And this is the moment that the church realized it. All the way up until Acts 9, the church was, was just still for people of Hebrew descendancy. At this point, everything's changed. 
At this point, everyone who claims Jesus as Lord is part of the people of God. Now, this we are going to see this play out for the rest of the book. As I said, do they need to be circumcised? What about the dietary laws? The church is going to deal with this and struggle with all the different changes that are included in this. But what you have to understand is that this is your inheritance. This is your story. This is the moment where you join the people of God. The church realizes it here, and do you, but do you realize it? Do you personally realize and do you feel and do you experience how much God is pursuing you individually? That he has steered history for you.